Okay, please stand with me and turn in your Bibles to Romans 16. Read briefly from Romans 16, 17 through 20 before we pick up the history in Judges with chapter 9, verse 22. Romans 16, verses 17 to 20. To ask God's blessing in the reading and preaching of his word. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would open our eyes to behold the wonderful things in your law. We pray that you would open my lips that I might declare your praise. Give all of us soft hearts to um, hear with faith and to believe and obey scriptures. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans 16, 17. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Let's turn now to Judges chapter 9. Picking up with verse 22. Abimelech ruled over Israel three years, and God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem. And the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech, that the violence done to the seventy sons of Jeroboam might come, and their blood be laid on Abimelech, their brother, who killed them, and on the men of Shechem, who strengthened his hands to kill his brothers. And the leaders of Shechem put men in ambush against him on the mountaintops, and they robbed all who passed by them along that way, and it was told to Abimelech. And Gaal, the son of Ebed, moved into Shechem with his relatives, and the leaders of Shechem put confidence in him. And they went out into the field and gathered the grapes from their vineyards and trod them and held a festival. And they went into the house of their god and ate and drank and reviled Abimelech. And Gaal, the son of Ebed, said, Who is Abimelech, and who are we of Shechem, that we should serve him? Is he not the son of Jeroboam, and is not Zebul his officer? Serve the men of Hamor, the father of Shechem, but why should we serve him? Would that this people were under my hand. Then I would remove Abimelech. I would say to Abimelech, Increase your army and come out. When Zebul, the ruler of the city, heard the words, of Gaal, the son of Ebed, his anger was kindled. And he sent messengers to Abimelech secretly, saying, Behold, Gaal, the son of Ebed, and his relatives have come to Shechem, and they are stirring up the city against you. Now, therefore, go by night, you and the people who are with you, and set an ambush in the field. Then in the morning, as soon as the sun is up, rise early and rush upon the city, and when he and the people who are with him come out against you, you may do to them as your hand finds to do. So Abimelech and all the men who were with him rose up by night and set an ambush against Shechem in four companies. And Gaal, the son of Ebed, went out and stood in the entrance of the gate of the city. And Abimelech and the people who were with him rose from the ambush. And when Gaal saw the people, he said to Zebul, Look, people are coming down from the mountaintops. And Zebul said to him, 
you mistake the shadow of the mountains for men. Ka'al spoke again and said, Look, people are coming down from the center of the land, and one company is coming from the direction of the diviner's oak. Then Zabul said to him, Where is your mouth now? You who said, Who is Abimelech that we should serve him? Are not these the people whom you despised? Go out now and fight with them. And Gaal went out at the head of the leaders of Shechem and fought with Abimelech. And Abimelech chased him, and he fled before him, and many fell wounded up to the entrance of the gate. And Abimelech lived at Arumah, and Zebul drove out Gaal and his relatives so that they could not dwell at Shechem. On the following day, the people went out into the field, and Abimelech was told. He took his people and divided them into three companies and set an ambush in the fields. And he looked and saw the people coming out of the city. So he rose against them and killed them. Abimelech and the company that was with him rushed forward and stood at the entrance of the gate of the city while the two companies rushed upon all who were in the field and killed them. And Abimelech fought against the city all that day. He captured the city and killed the people who were in it. And he raised the city and sowed it with salt. When all the leaders of the tower of Shechem heard of it, they entered the stronghold of the house of Elbereth. Abimelech was told that all the leaders of the tower of Shechem were gathered together. And Abimelech went up to Mount Zalman, he and all the people who were with him. And Abimelech took an axe in his hand and cut down a bundle of brushwood and took it up and laid it on his shoulder. And he said to the men who were with him, What you have seen me do, hurry and do as I have done. So every one of the people cut down his bundle and following Abimelech, put it against the stronghold and they set the stronghold on fire over them so that all the people of the tower of Shechem also died. About 1,000 men and women. Then Abimelech went to Tebates and encamped against Tebates and captured it. But there was a strong tower within the city, and all the men and women and all the leaders of the city fled to it and shut themselves in, and they went up to the roof of the tower. And Abimelech came to the tower and fought against it and drew near to the door of the tower to burn it with fire. And a certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. Then he called quickly to the young man, his armor-bearer, and said to him, Draw your sword and kill me, lest they say of me, A woman killed him. And his young man thrust him through, and he died. And when the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, everyone departed to his home. Thus God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his seventy brothers. And God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads, And upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jerubal. Amen. You may be seated. Back in October, as many of you know, I was attending the Westminster Seminary preaching conference. And uh, while I was there, I reconnected with a former classmate named Timothy Brindle. And this is the Timothy Brindle I've told you about before. Uh, who does the hip-hop with theological themes, a little bit different. Uh, I told you once about his song, The Head Crusher, where he says, Is David and Goliath about facing your giants, 
or about the son of David who was slaying the tyrant. Um, if you don't like hip-hop, that's okay, but you can go online and read the lyrics. It's pretty neat what he does with uh, David and Goliath there. So he's tracing this theme of the crushing of the serpent's head uh, through the scriptures as it begins in Genesis 3.15. Well, I went up to, to Timothy and I, and I told him, uh, Timothy, I just wanted to let you know um, that I used one of your songs as a sermon illustration recently when I was preaching on Sisera uh, being killed by uh, Jael when she drove that tent peg through his head in Judges and how it's an echo and a partial fulfillment of that Genesis 3.15 promise and so on. And he knew exactly what I was talking about. He said, yes, yes, just wait till you get to chapter 9 and the story of Abimelech. Because in chapter 9, it's going to be Abimelech whose head gets crushed by another woman. That's not an accident. He was exactly right. I've been looking forward to preaching this passage so all of us can see together that arch promise from Genesis echoed yet again in anticipation of that great day when the Lord Jesus Christ would crush the serpent's head once and for all. Yeah, so once again, the Lord here is crushing the serpent's head, but this time, the difference with compared to Sisera is that the enemy, in this case, happens to be the king that his people have chosen for themselves. Well, let's look at this passage in three parts this evening. The first is going to be a rival rebel, verses 22 to 29. Second, a forest fire, verses 30 to 49. And then third, the crushing of a king, verses 50 to 57. So a rival rebel, a forest fire, and the crushing of a king. Abimelech, uh, verse 22, says, ruled over Israel three years. Three years. Most of the action in this section happens, of course, at the end of those three years. However, let's not forget that for three whole years, there was Abimelech ruling in the region around Shechem, a brother-murdering, Baal-worshipping king, leading a Baal-worshipping people who had rejected the Lord. That's the context. Those are the circumstances where all of this plays out. So in this passage, then, the judgment of the Lord is going to fall on both the people and their king. Remember, I told you this so many times, when you're reading Bible history, don't forget to ask, what is the Lord doing in these events? Not just what is Abimelech doing, not just what is Gaal doing and the people of Shechem and so on. What is the Lord doing? And to help us keep that focus, the inspired historian actually uh, leads off here with telling us outright exactly what God is doing in these events. And God, he says, and God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem. Everything that follows flows from this supernatural action of God instigating uh, this series of events. Now, that phrase, evil spirit, can be a little confusing, a little disconcerting to some people. Um, So it raises the question, how can a God who is holy send an evil spirit? The kind of short answer is that evil here does not mean a morally evil spirit. 
what it, what it means basically is harmful. Uh, 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 harmful in the sense of, of um, calamity or disaster or tragedy. And all of those things are at the Lord's disposal um, without him ever doing something that is morally evil. Um, in fact, harmful is the way the same phrase is translated in 1 Samuel chapter 16 uh, in a closely related passage, in fact, there in 1 Samuel, uh, where the story of Saul and David is being told with these stories from ju- this history from Judges in the background of the historian's mind. In 1 Samuel 16, the spirit of the Lord departs from Saul, and it says, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him instead. So not morally evil, but evil in that sense of calamity, disaster, or tragedy. And that, that um, putting side by side the spirit of the Lord and the harmful spirit is significant because just like with Saul and David, we've also seen the Spirit of the Lord at work in Judges. In particular, more than once, but in particular in chapter 6, we heard that the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon. That's Bimelech's father, right? The Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon. And so just like that contrast with the Spirit of the Lord departing from Saul, uh, going to David, um, arresting on David, uh, rushing upon David, in fact, and then the harmful spirit of the Lord coming on Saul. There's this contrast here. Uh, Abimelech's father was clothed with the spirit of the Lord, giving him that power to deliver Israel. But Abimelech is experiencing the opposite. Abimelech experiences what Saul gets later in his life. Harmful spirit. And the result is judgment. It's destruction for both him and the people that he rules over. We want to notice here is how the Lord, as in many other places in Bible history, uses one group of wicked people as his agents of judgment on another group of wicked people. This is something that uh, Ralph Davis points out. and He compares this situation with the prophets, for example, where Babylon is God's instrument to judge rebellious Israel. But then the prophets go to great lengths to explain that Babylon also is going to come under, uh, come into judge, under judgment. He also, and this is very interesting, he also points out the parallels with Revelation chapter 17. And you may remember this from what we've been doing in adult Sunday school. Revelation 17, where there's the, the um, coalition between the beast and the prostitute. Remember, the, the prostitute is riding on the beast. But then... In chapter 17, the beast and its followers turn on her, and it says they devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. And this, as John is pointing out there, and as the historian of Judges is pointing out here, this is the self-destructive tendency of all rebellion against God. Once people rebel against the Lord, they will very, very often end up turning on one another. You know the phrase, no honor among thieves. And in God's plan, that self-destructive tendency of sinners to, to feud with each other is the means, often, that God uses to bring his judgment to bear on both groups. Um, as Davis reminds us, these opening verses really set the trajectory for the rest of the chapter by reminding us that for all of the chaos and all of the the treachery of the human characters, all of the great evil that comes out of the hearts of these people, 
We need to remember who is ultimately at work here, and it's the Lord. The Lord is the one who's overseeing the events. He is carrying out his plan, which is a good plan, a righteous plan, to bring judgment, both on Abimelech and on the people of Shechem for the murder of Abimelech's brothers. That's the big picture. Now, in verse 26, uh, this kind of resistance movement that has started in Shechem um, becomes concentrated in one individual, this person, Gaal, who sets himself up as uh, a rival leader challenging Abimelech's authority. Of course, Gaal uh, is no better than Abimelech. As, uh, Matthew Henry says, now you just have one bramble contesting with another. Um, so they're rivals, but in the end, they're really just rival rebels. Rival rebels against the Lord. But at any rate, Gaal persuades the people of Shechem that he is a better option than Abimelech. And you have to um, wonder how serious he is about this at first. It's almost like he gets swept along something he didn't really see himself getting involved with. Um, because you see when he first starts to uh, kind of engage in this uh, smack talk about Abimelech at this great big festival where everybody's been drinking... And no doubt the atmosphere just causes everyone to get kind of swept up in this emotional way that, yeah, we can take him. Let's, let's have this new leader. Nobody likes Abimelech. But then the morning comes and things a little bit of a different hue. Um, notice the, the overtones from earlier in Israel's history with Shechem that come out here. Gaal is appealing here to Shechem's Canaanite roots. He's basically saying, Why are you serving somebody who's half Israelite? Um, What we ought to be doing is we ought to be going back to the old family, the old ruling family of this city, the family of Hamor. Uh, That's Hamor, the father of the original Shechem, the Shechem who assaulted Dinah, Jacob's daughter, back in Genesis. See, part of this story is about God judging Abimelech for his wickedness, but part of it is also about God continuing to carry out the conquest of Canaan, the destruction of the Canaanites, the judgment on the Canaanites, um, in spite of his people's failure, in spite of this spurious king that Israel has has made for themselves. You know, Abimelech is no hero, not by any stretch. But through him, the Lord, who's the real hero of the story, is still carrying out his plan. Again, in spite of his people's failure, abject failure to carry out that plan properly the way they were supposed to, the Lord's work is still moving forward. Well, when morning comes, again, yeah, all of that um, smack talk from the night before um, doesn't look quite as good as it did over the bowls of wine. That mutiny Gaal launched was easy to talk about, but it very quickly becomes clear that he's not going to be able to succeed. Um, So this uh, right-hand man of Abimelech named Zabul, uh, he gets wind of the rebellion, he tells Abimelech what's going on, and he tells him, "You, you need to nip this in the bud, you need to strike right away. Bring your army on over. And in verses 34 to 41, that's exactly what Abimelech does. Um, there's this kind of wry, grim humor in the ways Abul first uh, deceives Gaal, 
tries to delay his response to Abimelech's attack. No, 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 those aren't men you see. Your eyes are just playing tricks on you. And and then when it becomes undeniable, unmistakable, that yes, no, Abimelech really is attacking, then you see how he kind of eggs Gaal on. He provokes him into leaving the shelter of the city and engaging in a battle that he cannot win. By the end of verse 41, Gaal and his relatives have been driven out and Abimelech is in charge of Shechem once again. But he doesn't stop there. He doesn't stop there. Here we want to remember the end of Gideon's story and uh, about Sukkoth and Penuel and how those two cities declined to help Gideon. And after um, uh, Gideon finishes defeating the Midianites, he turns back around to deal with those cities that, that refuse to help him. You remember how severely he punishes them to the the point where you think, this is really harsh. This really seems out of proportion to the offense. Well, in this case, it's like father, like son. Abimelech is echoing his father's behavior. He isn't content with just getting rid of the rival leader of the people of Shechem. Um, He wants revenge on the entire city, all of its people who dared to question his leadership. It's that same violent, vicious character that led him to murder his brothers uh, now breaks out again in a new rash of violence against this city that made him king. He massacres the common people out in the fields, kills all the people inside the city, sows it with salt. It's a a symbolic way of, of cursing the land with infertility. And then to cap it all off, he lays siege to the leaders who run and hide in the tower of Shechem, this kind of last line of defense, and he ends up burning it to the ground with the people inside. I've called the second point a forest fire. And what I have in mind there is the fable of Jotham, that last surviving brother uh, from verses 7 to 20 of this chapter. We dealt with in the beginning of January. You remember how the, the trees of the forest in that fable, they, they can't find any of the good trees uh, to rule over them. And so the, the bramble says, okay, I'll do it. I'll be your king. Um, I'll be the king of the forest, but if you reject me, well, then let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. You remember how Jotham applies that, saying, basically um, pronouncing this curse that fire is going to come from Abimelech and devour the leaders of Shechem, and fire is going to come from the leaders of Shechem and devour Abimelech. I love the way the historian recounts Uh, this siege then, this burning of the tower, in uh, such a way as to bring out so clearly how Jotham's curse is coming true in these ritually symbolic ways. Fire is quite literally coming from the bramble Abimelech as he uh, lights up these bundles of brushwood that he got from the nearby trees. He's burning the trees and thereby burning the people. And again, we need to remember this is not just about the satisfaction of Abimelech's desire for revenge. On a human level, that's what's going on. But in the big picture, the historian has told us that it is God who is at work here, that the violence done to the 70 sons of Jeroboam might come, and their blood may be laid not only on Abimelech, their brother, who killed them, but also on the men of Shechem, who strengthened his hands to kill his brothers. Okay, now, so far, only the second half of that plan has happened. 
That leaves the first half of the curse. What's going to happen now to Abimelech? So after acting as God's instrument of judgment against Shechem, Abimelech now becomes the object of God's judgment. And that brings us to the final point, which is the crushing of a king. Tebates, or Thebes as it looks in English, um, is a city that we haven't really heard of before, um, but it appears that it must have been aligned somehow with Shechem and with Shechem's revolt. Uh, So Abimelech captures Tebates, just like he captured Shechem, and just like Shechem, Tebates apparently has a tower. It has this stronghold, this last line of defense. And Abimelech thinks, well, it worked at Shechem, so let's just use the same strategy. Let's pile up the brushwood and burn this tower too, except this time the outcome is different. This time he goes to the wall of the tower to light it up, and it says, a certain woman could also be translated, one woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. Now, there are all kinds of word plays and ironies going on in that one verse. It is a, it's just a very dramatic moment, uh, both in what is happening and the way it is being recounted. First, remember where it was that Abimelech killed the 70 sons of Gideon. It said it was on one stone. He killed them on one stone, emphasizing his cruelty and the cold-bloodedness of that mass murder. Well, now, it is by this one stone that the Lord delivers the crushing blow to Abimelech. Second thing, uh, Lawson Younger notes this. The the Hebrew word for woman, isha, uh, sounds a lot like the Hebrew word for fire, esh. And so it's possible, even likely, we should see this as a word play. You remember how Jotham's curse said that the fire would come out from the bramble and consume the trees, and the fire would come out from the trees and consume the bramble. Well, here's not fire, it's a stone. Abimelech doesn't get burned up, but who throws the stone? It's Nisha, which sounds like Aish. Um, and so it's kind of a wordplay showing that, yes, this is that curse uh, coming broadly to fulfillment in the death of Abimelech. Also note that it's just one woman is all that it takes to do this. All of that power that Abimelech has sought to accumulate, all of that might that he has brought to bear in this violent vengeance against one enemy after another, and all of it is undone in an instant by one woman throwing one stone. Lawson Younger, again, is right, I think, to emphasize then the way all this is illustrating for us the ultimate point of the story. Who is the true king here? Who is orchestrating all of these events just as he orchestrated Sisera coming into the tent of Jael, just as he orchestrated the coming together of David and Goliath and that one stone felling that one giant of a man? Who is really on the throne? Who really has the power? Whose plan is being carried out? It's the Lord. It is the Lord. You know, I'm referencing a lot of different people tonight, but I want to give credit where credit's due. Another writer, Barry Webb, 
brings out an important conclusion from all this. Thinking of the Israelites who would have read this history originally. Imagine, for a minute, all of the enemies that Israel has continued to face down through the years. Imagine just the constant peril and insecurity of life in the ancient world where there were these mighty empires and there were these powerful warrior kings all around, all the time, threatening Israel's very existence. It never let up. Dangers were never taken away. Imagine the constant temptation for Israel to think, what do we really need if we're going to survive and thrive around here in the Middle East? What is going to keep us safe? What is going to keep us secure and prosperous in this military and political and economic environment? Well, if we could just have a king like those kings that they have, those peoples around us. If we could just have a, a, a tough guy, a ruthless person, like what, well, like Abimelech, somebody like him. That's the kind of person these hard times call for. And the message of this history for Israel, as they were to read it, was, Wake up, Israel. The solution is not for you to get a king like Abimelech to rule over you. What is needed, as that commentator Webb puts it, I love this, what is needed is a wholehearted return to the Lord. That is what is needed for the people of God. That is the only solution for Israel. If they want that security and that prosperity that they crave, it is something that the Lord has already promised to them in His covenant. If only they will receive it by faith, by trusting exclusively in Him, instead of dividing their affections and their loyalties so broadly to all these other sources of protection. And help. And yet, throughout their history, that's exactly what they keep seeming to do. They keep seeking those things everywhere else except from the Lord. But you see, the defeat and the death of Abimelech point us back yet again to the promises of God and the power of God, and especially to that arch promise of Genesis chapter 3 that the Lord is going to crush the serpent's head. He did it with Sisera. He did it with Abimelech. He did it with Goliath. He did it with the Leviathan we sang about in Psalm 74. And he did it once and for all in that final climactic way through the death and the resurrection of his son. When he broke the power of sin and Satan over us and made the way in spite of our sin and rebellion. In spite of our waywardness of our affections and our loyalty, he made the way for us to be forgiven, for us to be accepted as children of God. And for, for all of our folly, just like the Israelites, for all of our folly in setting up our own Abimelechs, whatever they might be, of all the ways we turn to just anything and everything but the Lord to keep us safe, to give us what we want. The comfort of this book, with all of its tragic endings, is that That folly of ours is not the end of the story. God has sent his true king, the king of kings and the Lord of lords, to cast down all of our idols, to free us from their power, and to make us his, and his alone, only his. And so what he's calling us to is the same thing he was calling Israel to, as that writer put it so well, a wholehearted 
return to the Lord. What better time than than the first day of the year for us to recommit ourselves together as individuals, as households, as a congregation locally here of the Lord Jesus Christ to answer that wonderful call as it's expressed in Psalm 146 like this, to put not your trust in princes and a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth, just like Abimelech. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is in the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth and the sea that all, and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. The Lord upholds the widow and the fatherless. But the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. He is a king so unlike Abimelech. And he is the one that you and your household and this congregation must resolve to serve this year with all that is in us. Because we are not our own. We belong, body and soul, to him alone. And his promises will never fail us. Let's pray. Our great God, this is a very sad story, a very sad ending. We're so thankful for the way it comes to us here in the middle of the scriptures to remind us of just how weak and useless our idols are, the things that we look to to be strong and to keep us safe when it is only you who can be our true refuge and strength, the true, very present help for us in times of trouble, our true king. Lord, we ask that you would forgive us for all of our rebellion, revolt against you, all the ways we have wandered and tried to go our own way, do our own thing, control our own destiny, instead of resting and trusting in you, in faith and in obedience. Lord, we ask that this year would be characterized in our lives, in our homes, in our church, by a growth in humility and submission to your kingship, to your rule over us, your rule in us, your rule through us. Lord, we ask that as you have once and for all crushed the serpent's head, Lord, we ask that you would crush the remnants of sin that remain in us, those remnants of rebellion that keep rearing their ugly heads. Lord, let us live as those who belong body and soul to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood has fully paid for all of our sins and delivered us from all the power of the devil. Thank you for hearing these prayers. We thank you for speaking to us tonight in your word. We ask that you would bless each of us as we go from here tonight. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.